This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. From an insurance coverage point of view, we're trying to wrestle with interest rate hikes from the Fed designed to cool the economy in order to combat inflation. But in doing so, does that cool employer activity and lead to more, in theory, job losses on the commercial side? And do they land in Medicaid? Do they roll into the exchanges uninsured? And what does that do to the overall Medicaid disenrollment numbers? Hello, and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Tori Ritchie. Today, I'm going to play part host, part panel expert as I chat about the latest insurance coverage forecast refresh. I am also joined today by two of our finance and policy experts, Brian Esser and Trevor Duren. Brian, Trevor, when I think about our refresh efforts this year, I am immediately reminded of us trying to wrap our arms around the implications of the public health emergency expiring at some point in the future, certainly gave us a fun new curveball to work with in our forecasting efforts. So I'm curious, Trevor, what was the most challenging aspect of this year's refresh, in your opinion? As usual, Tori, you undersold your role. The main role that Brian and I play is Tori comes up with a trend. It's like, how does this look, guys? And we're like, yeah, pretty good. The trickiest part was for sure, not just what's going to happen with the PHE, because the immediate impact is primarily in Medicaid, but it's how are people then going to move in and out of other insurance products or not be insured in reaction to that. Unlike some of the models we get to build, this is a zero-sum game. We can't just add people or take people away. They have to come from somewhere. Yeah, agree. And I've said to you all a number of times, each state is going to unwind in a different way. So there are thousands of compounding possibilities for what is going to happen and how are people going to then be reattributed to other financial classes. The other thing that was tricky, particularly about that Medicaid piece is right now, because states have not been able to remove people from Medicaid for the last two and a half years, there's some amount of dual enrollment that's happening where people who have a Medicaid plan might also have a commercial plan or might also have a Medicare or exchange plan. Trying to then think through proportionally what's going to happen when people get pushed off of those Medicaid rolls was a bit of a challenge. Tori, the Medicaid is a fascinating area this year in particular for all the reasons you just outlined. The public health emergency is still in effect and we're not quite sure when it will end. We're thinking in 2023, but that can continue to push out. And since we haven't had disenrollment, we do have this inflated overall enrolled Medicaid population that has, in theory, some level of dual eligibility or has other commercial or exchange insurance or, or something else at the same time. We're starting to see that because Tangentially, we've heard from providers, they haven't seen utilization of the Medicaid pace alongside with that enrollment. That is a fact. The overlap is the challenge and where they will land once disenrollment activities begin at the state level is still a confusing mess that we're trying to work our way through. The other thing I would add on top of that is that we do have this interesting dynamic, just economic-wide, of inflation. We hear inflation, we see it in our pocketbooks. From an insurance coverage point of view, we're trying to wrestle with interest rate hikes from the Fed designed to cool the economy in order to combat inflation. 
But in doing so, does that cool employer activity and lead to more, in theory, job losses on the commercial side? And do they land in Medicaid? Do they roll into the exchanges uninsured? And what does that do to the overall Medicaid disenrollment numbers? Does it cool that off or slow that down as some people end up staying or retreating to Medicaid as they lose their employer-covered insurance? That's a valid point. And even when we started to refresh the forecast this year, we really weren't seeing layoffs at that point. And just in recent weeks, we've started to see increasing activity from a layoff perspective. That certainly will be something that we keep a pulse on and track throughout the year to better understand really what the potential is in terms of commercial loss. The only other thing about Medicaid was the timing, which we talked about a lot, because When the PHE goes away, that doesn't mean people are automatically going to be disenrolled. States have invested differently in resources to help people get into other products, to show people who can use subsidies, to buy something through the exchanges. So there's going to be huge variation at the state level. And I think where we landed is most of that is going to happen in 24, though. And then there's going to be continued declines in 25. And then we're going to kind of not be back to baseline, but then we'll probably see a little bit of net Medicaid growth. We'll pick up where we left off and we'll sort of return to it. Medicaid has always grown in the past. We're going to get back to Medicaid resuming growth in the back end of our five-year forecast. You're absolutely right, though. We pretty much use the determination that if you're ineligible, you're ineligible. There's very little the state can do, despite what they may wish they could, but they're going to have to kick people off who don't meet eligibility requirements. Most of that is likely to happen then in that 12 to 14 month unwinding period, which then falls nicely over the 2024 and 2025 calendar years. To your point, Tori, there's just, are you eligible or not decisions? And if you are not eligible for Medicaid, then you will likely transfer to another form of insurance or uninsured. There's another population we're trying to size, and it's really this idea of a churn population who may be eligible on a continued basis, but for whatever reason, they've relocated. There's a language barrier. They're just harder to reach out to and keep them enrolled continuously. So how much of those folks fall off at irregular timestamps for months or a year and then come back on? And how do you get ahead of that? churn. And from a provider point of view, can you get ahead of that and help encourage and educate those that may be eligible for Medicaid on an ongoing basis or another form of insurance and help them transition throughout this somewhat rocky 12 to 14 month time frame as things are shifting on an insurance basis? Absolutely. And that too, the churn aspect is something that will be interesting to see play out. We've looked at the estimates from the Congressional Budget Office. We've looked at some Kaiser Family Foundation reports and the estimate in total for how many people could lose Medicaid coverage is like 15 million. But a good chunk of that 15 million do fall into that churn category. It's not that they're ineligible. It's not that they shouldn't be on Medicaid. It's that they might slip through the cracks. So it'll be interesting to see what processes and systems states put in place to help mediate what that impact could be. Yeah. And as we've talked to our colleagues in D.C. and elsewhere, disenrolling or removing insurance options and coverage from the populations, regardless of state and political affiliation, isn't really a winning strategy. And we're starting to see more. And then the question becomes for non-expansion states, obviously, South Dakota just voted to expand, which is interesting. Are other states that haven't expanded going to be over the next three to five years looking at this much more closely, especially given when we had a pandemic, people needed health care, that health systems and, and safety net were strained? 
is there a need for just more robust coverage and I guess more appetite to pushing that than before? And I guess we'll see that. I know we were keeping a close eye on the midterm election cycle to better understand, particularly at that state level, which states perhaps were going to see a party flip. And would that perhaps indicate if somebody would expand Medicaid? If you look at just political dynamics, we still have an administration that's in favor of the exchanges. So we would expect ongoing, at least support marketing, communication about those benefits, as well as the subsidies that got extended through 2025 that sort of raised the income levels and the subsidies inherent within. I don't know if the exchanges will ever grow to be a robust program, but as far as them being stable at their current volumes and enrollment, we see that going throughout really the next five years. It should be tailing off a bit, but overall stable and higher than it was in 2019. Agree. Exchange enrollment was at 14.5 million in 2022. By all accounts, it's supposed to be a record year in 2023. So we certainly baked some growth into that baseline number and then expect to see a boom, frankly, while the American Rescue Plan is intact and the PHE unwinds and we have folks who are rolling off of Medicaid and with those navigators are pushing them to the marketplace plans. A strong foot forward for the marketplace plans, although I don't think we ever see them creeping up much above 5% of the total population. Another area that I know we keep very close tabs on is what's happening in the Medicare arena, particularly what that breakout is between Medicare Advantage versus traditional. Trevor, you lead much of that research. Do you want to speak to what we were thinking about this year? I thought you'd never ask. MA is a place that we've been pretty aggressive in our forecast for the last few years, and we've still undershot where the real enrollment numbers came in by a little bit. We're directionally, I think, in really good shape. And I also think we did a pretty good job projecting the places it would grow fastest because there'd be marketing dollars spent on some smaller size markets that MA penetration had lagged. But we didn't anticipate big markets where MA was already big to just continue growing as fast as they had. And so in 2023, we're expecting Medicare Advantage is going to be more than 50% of those eligible for Medicare. A few years ago, that would have seemed like a really aggressive forecast, but it doesn't anymore. And we expect it to get to 60% by the end of our forecast term, which is five years. That remakes the Medicare landscape. It's no more, when are we going to get to the tipping point in most markets where it's 35 or 40%? It's like we've blown the doors off that. And now it's what's the new ceiling of how high MA penetration can go. There was historic expectation that 60 or 70% was kind of a natural ceiling just because there's always going to be a segment of the population that's not really going to engage and just have traditional. There's going to be a segment of the population that's always going to want to buy a supplement, especially MA never works great for snowbird populations, but we're seeing those boundaries get pushed. Miami-Dade County passed 70% last year. And at the end of our five-year forecast, many of the biggest markets in the country are going to be right up against pushing that ceiling. We'll learn in the next few years what the new natural limits are of what segment of the population MA is going to work great for, but payers are going to try and keep growing that by increasing supplemental benefits and by still trying to, despite whatever regulatory things change about how they can use prior auth and face it, there's going to be continued back and forth there, but they're going to continue to focus on growth through $0 premium plans. And we know that 
in a tough economy, making an economic argument about, well, your premiums can be zero dollars. That's an easy thing to understand when consumers are getting bombarded with information as they're turning 65 and making choices about Medicare enrollment. Those two things combined are going to keep shoveling coal into the train that's rolling full speed ahead. This is such an important story because there are very real downstream impacts of this growing MA population. Typically, we see declines in things like potentially avoidable admissions, ED visits, skilled nursing facility visits, hospice care. At the same time, we then typically see an increase in services like preventative wellness visits. So it is something that we really need markets to understand. We need organizations to understand their local market dynamics so that they can prepare for that change in utilization. It's something certainly to bake into strategic planning and and keep an eye on. Trevor, you're also involved in the primary care space for our team. And so I'm curious, what are some of then the other impacts that providers should be looking out for as MA continues to comprise a much larger portion of the Medicare population? It probably depends how much success we see health systems building creative partnerships with payers around MA. If we keep the status quo, then MA payers are going to manage utilization administratively the way that we've seen them do before, right? Prior auth, they'll make access a little easier and cheaper for alternatives to try to dry down ED visits. They will continue to prioritize keeping patients and inpatient a little bit longer at the expense of discharge to places like skilled nursing, where they have less control over cost and quality or less options around cost and quality in many markets. And so that's like the status quo path. My optimistic, hopeful path is most health systems are talking about MA as an important place where they need to have strategic alignment with the other things that they're doing. And some are getting there. There's a big divide between those that have been experimenting and so can now kind of take those relationships to the next level and those that are just starting. But there's appetite on the payer side. And so I think we'll see more and more shared savings arrangements and systems using it as an opportunity to have incentives, to flow to primary care providers, use it as an alignment tool. My hope, again, optimistic, Trevor, that it won't just be a bunch of more administrative stuff on the primary care provider side, like coding and documentation and focus on documentation for STARS metrics purposes, but provide an opportunity for better alignment with the health system as they're working on things like trying to drive down unnecessary inpatient utilization and focusing more on getting more precise about growth targets. That's optimistic view. That's status quo view. We'll probably land somewhere in the middle. The other area of the insurance coverage forecast I want to hit on is the commercial bucket. Some general trends that we made sure to accomplish here is that we will see an uptick in commercial enrollment as the PHE unwinds. Going back to that story of our hypothesis is that there is a portion of Medicaid enrollees today who also have a commercial plan. So moving those individuals into a commercial bucket, as well as increased employer pressure to ensure that employees are provided health benefits to a certain extent. So some organic growth from that perspective. But then at the same time, we're also dealing with the general aging of the population. And so we have to move folks down to that Medicare bucket, an interesting push and pull on the commercial side. Even with that increased employer pressure to provide health benefits for their employees, it's 
going to be interesting to see what that translates to in terms of plan options. So we expect high deductible health plans will continue to grow. It'll comprise a higher proportion of commercial enrollees moving forward. At the same time, we do expect to continue to see the softening of HMO and PPO plans, which has been trending down for the last couple of years. Again, just giving employees more flexibility, more choice in who they can see within their provider network, but then also an effort to help manage cost on the employer side. What we heard in a different episode where we talked about direct employer options is that insurers are saying to employers now to expect 7 to 10% growth in 2023 in MLR or spend in healthcare, depending on whose perspective you look at it from, knowing that total enrollment is relatively flat. So that doesn't really impact our coverage forecast here, but I think it's noteworthy that those are the discussions being had by kind of the the two other legs of the stool here when we think about stakeholders and commercial. I was just on a call with a group of health system C-suite leaders talking about really more workforce dynamics. But one thing they brought up is that the younger demographics, 25 and under, opting or asking if there's a way to eliminate their benefits in exchange for higher pay rates. Now, I'm not saying that's happening very broadly, but is there a cohort of the young? And if you marry that with the ability to shop more effectively with price transparency data that is saying, I would rather take the dollars that are tied to my commercial plan in my salary, I'll forego my benefits and I'll shop more aggressively and just pay cash. I don't know if that's a big trend or not, but that's something that I was surprised even came up. And it's just something I want to keep an eye on. That's really interesting, particularly because right now with the American Rescue Plan and Act, your deductible for a marketplace plan is capped at X percent of your take-home pay based on what your salary is or what your earnings are for a given year. So it could absolutely see there being a population of savvy shoppers who do the math and figure out that they'll be bringing home then X number of more dollars per year if they just get a payout from their employer to then shop a low-cost, low-deductible plan on the marketplace. So it'll be interesting to follow that trend especially if the subsidy rules change after the American Rescue Plan ends, if we go back to then the FPL-based subsidy arrangement. I think when we think about the potential size there, I mean, it can include people who work in healthcare forecasting and policy, you know, that really know those details well enough to take advantage of that. Brian, why should our members care? Why is this an important tool? We hear from the member's perspective, Medicare and Medicaid are growing. We're seeing our commercial populations shrink. But as you start to think about that and look at the nuances into the out years and saying, okay, I'm not going to be negotiating with CMS. I can't negotiate with Medicaid. But we do see this penetration, as Trevor highlighted, growing Medicare Advantage and competition amongst payers for those enrollees. And how do you as a provider partner with these plans and think about how do you broker value-based programs within those Medicare Advantage populations? How do you help them understand their narrow network opportunities? And how do you really keep your system of care sticky to that growing population? And then secondarily, looking at that commercial, then thinking within the commercial population, high deductible health plans, other pushes and pulls that are really ultimately putting more of the cost on the consumer. And the employer is trying to make educated discussions or decisions about how they give the benefits to the employee in, in the optimal way that keeps their employees healthy, engaged, and ultimately staying with them as the employer. So using this to forecast pivots locally 
in the market and the insurance dynamic there and communicate that to the stakeholders all the way from the consumer to the employer to the payer in a meaningful way that they understand why it matters and, and what you're doing to accommodate pressure they may be under either from just having insurance and, and accessing care to spending and paying for that care from the buyer point of view. And Tori, as you see with Impact of change, our biggest demand forecast. In some ways, the year-over-year differences are less important than looking at the trend over the time horizon of the forecast. And we always debate this stuff so much, the year-over-year trends, but it's the big piece that's going to impact the difference in a local strategy, a big investment, making a market-specific decision because this forecast gets down to the zip level. So the ability to use this as one more tool as you're making decisions that it might be made next year, but you're going to be trying to get ROI on that in all the out years where all of a sudden your mix and demand models going to look totally different. Very valid points. I love the way that you phrase that, Trevor. It's not so much the year-over-year impact. It really is what are those storylines that are being carried through. You might miss sometimes on the magnitude or the timing of it, but the more important piece of it really is that through line, making sure that you're preparing individuals to be able to tackle the changing landscape and make sure that they're considering all of the different multifactorial things that are causing that landscape to change. Trevor, Brian, thank you so much for joining. For members listening, the latest insurance coverage outputs should be available to you mid-December. And with that, always happy to field any questions that you might have on those outputs. Thank you and see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes. And you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.